looking today and the next three weeks at questions that people ask. About six weeks ago, we asked the congregation, what is your question? If there's one question you'd like to have addressed in a message, what would it be? And so we got a lot of responses, and we formulated those responses into four main categories that seemed to get at the heart of what most people were asking. And so today, we're asking the question that many people were asking, heaven, who's in and who's out? When you think about that, uh, there's a lot of questions, of course, behind the question. There's a lot of questions about, well, what about people of other religions? And so we, we want to address some thoughts with you today. And uh, to get it going, I'd like to ask you to ask yourself, if you were taking uh, a test, you know, you know those kind of those personality tests that you got to take and, and you get two, one of two options to choose from and you don't like either option or you like both options about the same? That's kind of what this is about. Uh, but if you were to uh, respond to who's in, would it be more people who say they have faith in Christ but produce no evidence of a transformed life? So they, they may have all the right beliefs, but they don't seem to have Christ-like character. Or would you go with people who reflect Christ-like character, even deep spirituality, but may not claim the faith, particularly not the, the Christian faith? Well, it's just a, a good way, again, of thinking about the framework of how do you get your mind and heart around this. What I would like to do with you today is address that question in kind of two different frame of references or viewpoints. And, and one viewpoint is more of a secular frame of mind or a reference where uh, of a worldview that is very common today. And then I would also like to give you a, a a response from the biblical point of view, not uh, spouting scripture and verse as much as really giving an overview of the big span of what the biblical message is to that, okay? So first of all, just in terms of the worldview today, um, this is becoming more and more popular, particularly in our country, and particularly the younger that you are, that uh, all faiths or all religions are to be considered equal in the sense of value, in the sense of worth, um, and appreciation for all religions, or no religion at all, no faith at all. And so uh, no group then, no religious group, is to have any particular exclusive claims or um, superiority in terms of what it is their belief system's about over another. And so if you think otherwise, um, you're made out to kind of come off as very narrow-minded or even uh, you might be considered a religious bigot. And no one wants to be considered a bigot, and no one wants to be thought of as narrow-minded. So in a sense, it's just very easy to subscribe to this idea, this pol politically correct viewpoint that, yes, certainly, uh, people who are religious, people who are sincere, people who are equally good, that would also mean that all religions are equal, equally uh, of value and worth. Um, and certainly, uh, we value, we accept the coexistence of, of the major religions of the world, of various religious points of view, we believe in tolerance. 
I believe in dialogue with people of other faiths uh, and a sense of, of mutual love and a sense that everyone is created in the image of God. So uh, that's not what my struggle is personally with the point of view that's common today. But there's a couple reasons why I personally cannot go with the uh, what's universally more and more true among many people that of political correctness. And, and the first reason I can't is that intellectually, it's pretty hard to make the jump that all religions are the same. Um, all the religions are the same in sense of value and worth and perspective. There's such a difference in, in the points of view of the major religions of the world. There's a big difference between what a Hindu believes about nirvana and the concept of heaven and hell. There's a big difference about how people view Jesus Christ in terms of Muslims or Judaism or Christianity. In Judaism, Jesus Christ is not accepted as the Messiah, as the Savior that was prophesied to come to his people. Islam believes that Jesus was a good prophet. Next to Muhammad, the best of all prophets. And because of that, God would not allow Jesus to suffer death on the cross. And thus, Jesus was not raised from the dead. So you have this understanding in the Islam faith about Jesus, which of course uh, really guts the essence of faith that Christians adhere to, of Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. There's also what confuses the issue so much is there's so many different subgroups within religions themselves. In Hinduism, some Hindus believe in the reality of God, and some don't. Some are deists, some are not. In Judaism, some Orthodox Jews, are, they are certainly looking for the Messiah yet to come. But the major part of Judaism today no longer believes in a personal Messiah. But the idea of a Messiah is, is the concept that they have. And there's so many differences, isn't there, among Muslims. It's so unfair for us to lump Muslims in one category or to suggest that moderate Muslims and militant Muslims are the same. Just as there's so many differences in Christianity's family tree. It was about five or six years ago, we did a sermon series on Christianity and world religions. And the following year, or was it the year before, we did a, a series of messages on Christianity's uh, major tree faiths. And uh, we may have to revisit that sometime because it was a, a very good foundational understanding and appreciation of the differences among us. So what does this mean? If you're a, if you're a person that wants to be open-minded, that is looking for truth, I really want to congratulate you on that. And the, the, the one thing that I would always encourage people to do who are seeking for the truth but are not believers or don't really know what to believe is to really look and study the life of Jesus Christ. 
which uh, is central, of course, to our faith. So I always suggest to people, read the Gospels in the New Testament. And be aware that in the New Testament writings, the Christian writings about Jesus, they are very closely linked time-wise to the event, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Within a decade, some of the epistles of the New Testament that we have were written and circulated. And within 50 years, the Gospels all emerge. And so you have these writings, these narrative writings, these historical oral documents that are put down in written form, theological treatises, if you will, that's very closely tied to the appearance, the historical appearance of Jesus Christ. You owe it to yourself to do the research. You owe it to yourself to, to look at the secular writings of Josephus, who is not a Christian, who writes about the historical Jesus. So intellectually, it's, it's important just to kind of say that to folks. And it's interesting that the earliest Christian writings include some of the earliest Christian hymns sung by believers about Jesus within a decade of his death and resurrection. We have one of those hymns in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. We're not going to take time to read those verses together, but it's interesting to look at what the early Christians believed and laid their lives down about Jesus. You, you may believe it or you're not, but this is what they said. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him and for him. So he is the creator himself. That he is the head of the body, the church. All things hold together in him. He's the firstborn from the dead. That he was raised from the dead. That all the fullness, all the fullness of who God is, was pleased to dwell and manifest and show itself up through this Jesus that comes to this earth. And that God has reconciled all things through him, making peace through his cross. Now, you decide, we decide what we believe, what we sense, what we, what we accept, what we know or not know about Jesus Christ. But that's the place that I always encourage people to start. I love Timothy Keller's words when he talks about facts, when he says that facts aren't narrow, facts are true. The real narrowness isn't the truth claims. It's the disdaining, it's the sneering, it's the belittling of others, it's being narrow. What are needed are people who have exclusive truth claims that humble them. See, there's nothing special about being a Christian in the sense of making you superior or better than someone else. There's, there's no reason to feel arrogant about that. If you get the essence of the Christian faith, it humbles you. I was reading the testimony of a young man this week 
who was a Muslim, an American, an American Muslim who grew up in this country. And he talks about growing up in a country where he has, you know, as a minority, he has many Christian friends. And he says most of his Christian friends didn't take their, their faith that seriously at all. They didn't really know the scriptures. He said, I, as an American Muslim, I knew the Quran. I knew the scriptures. I knew what I believed. I, I prayed regularly. I, I was religious. And I believed very strongly that my faith was superior to Christianity. And I believed this for years until I met one guy, one Christian, who took his faith very seriously, who could defend his faith, who could articulate his faith, who was a person of prayer, who really knew this Jesus. And through that relationship that we developed, I came to the, not, to the conclusive evidence that I too needed to come and believe and put my trust in Jesus Christ. And he says to people who are Christians, how do you treat people of other faiths? You, you love people. You know what you believe, but you, you live this incarnational lifestyle. You, you are among them. You're with them. You respect them. You love them. Just like you love others. And as you befriend them, they begin to take a closer look at your faith. So that's the spirit, I think, that I always approach or try to approach people who are of a secular mindset that aren't ready to really hear the biblical view. What I want to do now is switch gears with you, and I want to talk with you in the time that I have remaining about the, the biblical viewpoint of who's in and who's out. And I, I think we understand this best when we understand the word covenant, that God is a God of covenants. God makes agreements. He makes covenant with his people. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. You have a book that's full of different covenants where God is continuously reaching out to his people, wanting to have a relationship, wanting to reveal something about himself through this covenant, through this agreement, through this contract. And so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you have the series of ways in which God is reaching out to his people, an agreement between two people. And God is always trying to establish his covenant, and we're always messing it up. And so let's look in five minutes at five major covenants in the Bible, an impossible task. But one of the basic first covenants you have is the covenant that was given to Noah. The idea of a universal flood is not unique to Judeo-Christian scriptures the Gilgamesh flood, the, the epics, the stories, is something that isn't unique to us. What, what is unique is this sense that this God, after the flood, makes a promise. After he has preserved eight in the flood, in the ark during the flood, and there's a lot of discrepancies between the scripture and the movie, uh, after that occurs, God gives a rainbow, and he gives a promise. He's revealed something about the righteousness, the goodness of who he is. 
You see, God has a PR problem. When God takes action against evil, he's considered vengeful. When God doesn't seem to do anything at all, he seems like an absentee landlord. So in this covenant, where God gives the rainbow, he promises never to, de to destroy the world again. In the second great covenant of the scripture, there's the covenant of Abraham. Abraham is 99 years old when God calls him. And this is the call of a special people, the people of Israel, that God is going to reach his people, and he wants to use this one nation as a way of reaching the whole world. And so God gives an outward sign to Abraham, circumcision. Now, unfortunately, God does not grandparent this rule in, where not only do eight-year-old boys are circumcised, but all the males of all ages are circumcised as well. You can just kind of see Abraham saying, God, Noah, he got a rainbow. I get circumcision. Circumcision is this outward, external sign, a marking, an identification that you are different, that you're set apart, that God has a unique relationship with you. But this is also a relationship that's based on faith. Abraham believes in God. He obeys God. He trusts God. And because of that, he's considered righteous. So you get this idea as a forerunning covenant to Jesus, that we're not righteous or good because of the works that we do, but because we really trust God and we follow God, we put our faith in God, we're considered righteous. The third major covenant of the scripture is the covenant of Moses. And Moses gives the Ten Commandments. And the commandments are given not because God is a killjoy kind of God, not because God wants to cramp our style, but because God's the God that brings us into freedom. He's the God that delivers us from slavery. And so just as the Israelites were delivered from the slavery of the Egyptians, God wants to set us free from those habits, uh, those principles, those things that we do that injure ourselves. So God gives us the commandments. But along with those commandments, written on tablets of stone. He sets up these ceremonials, the, these rituals that cover our sin, that, to cover the moral lapse or the failure that we're going to have in living up to that covenant, to that, to that law. So God in his mercy lays out truth, but he continues to offer grace to his people. Then there's the covenant that God makes with David where God creates a throne for Israel because the people want somebody else to be king other than them. So the people continue to reject God. And the kings are not perfect. But in the midst of the kingdom of Israel falling and messing up and David messing up and a lot of kings that followed him, God makes a promise. There's going to be a king that's going to come. He's going to sit on David's throne. And he's going to rule for forever. He's going to establish this kingdom. And you begin to see the covenant pointing to Jesus. But the ultimate covenant is the new covenant. Jeremiah and the prophets of the Old Testament and the letters of the New Testament and the Gospels talk about this new covenant 
covenant where God is not going to write his laws anymore on tablets of stone as laws that you've got to do. But he's going to write these laws on the pages of your heart. A covenant where circumcision doesn't mean anything. But a circumcised heart, a heart that is tender, a heart that is soft, where God actually changes us from the inside out. And those blood of animals that was, were designed to cover our sin never really worked. But the blood of Jesus is offered as a cleansing of our minds and our hearts where we're set free to serve the living God. A new covenant, a new relationship that God wants everyone to have as he looks forward to a day when everyone will know the Lord, that no one will need to say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for everyone will have the knowledge, the personal knowledge of God. That's the covenant. That's God's way of inviting all of us in, into his heaven, into his kingdom, into his relationship. I want to end by uh, <clears throat> sharing with you an illustration that I think really brings us home to us of basically how a Jewish boy proposed to a Jewish girl during the days of Jesus. What did a boy do in the Jewish faith if he wanted a gal to marry him? He would go to her home and he would bring his proposal. He would also bring his bride gift or bride price that he had to offer to the father, to the family. And as he made his proposal, he would take a cup of wine and he would drink of the wine and he would offer it to the lady. If she accepted his offer, she would drink of the cup. If she didn't want him, she would refuse the cup. If she accepted it, then the Jewish boy would say these words, words that are recorded for us in John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would go what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, there you also will be. And so they were pledged to be married for the next year. She would wait for him. She would have a veil over his, her face. She would wait to purify her heart for him to come back. And he would go to his father's house, and in Palestine, Israel, among the peasants, generations of families lived in the same household. And the Jewish boy would then construct a new room to his father's house. It might take him up to a year to do that. He would build this room with his own hands for himself and his bride. The father would have to inspect it to make sure he wasn't cutting corners and just trying to get in a hurry. 
And after the room was signed off of by the father, he would come back. He would go to her house. And there she was waiting with lamps lit, oil burning for him to come. As he approached the house with his wedding party, there was a shout and there was the blow of a horn for she did not know when he was coming. And when he came, he received her to himself and they went to his father's house and there they consummate, consummated the marriage. And for seven days, they enjoyed a honeymoon in the bridal suite until all the wedding party gathered for the great marriage supper. Jesus is the Jewish boy that has come from the Father's house. And he has come to us, his people, his beloved, his bride. And he's offered to us his own price, the bride price, the price of his very life. And Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. He offers us to accept his invitation. We can accept that invitation or we can reject it. As he leaves us, he has gone to the Father's house and he's preparing this room for us. And he tells us that he will come back. And when he comes back, there will be a shout and there will be a trumpet blast. As he comes back for us, will our lamps be burning? Will we be waiting? Are we looking? Are we expecting? Are we wanting? Are we looking forward to his return? For he comes for us, his people, his church, his bride take him to himself to consummate our marriage where we are in union with God forever and ever and we celebrate the great marriage supper of the Lamb and so to the question who's in and who's out Jesus has put his offer on the table Who's in? Who's out? Are you in? Or are you out? You decide.